Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we can join together and laugh and and worship you and praise you. Thank you for each and every person here uniquely, how you have brought them to this point to even meet together here um, with all the things that are um, a part of who we are. We pray that you would bring these things together in ways that would bring honor and glory and would show respect to you and to one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may not believe it, but I am actually had some military training. I was in ROTC for one quarter at Wheaton College. <laughs> hey, what are you laughing about? I took an orienteering course that repelled off the school gym. Anyway, um, it was for one quarter. It was supposed to be for a year. And about 80% of the guys who were supposed to take, required to take ROTC for one year, Got out of it after that first quarter. It was a quarter system, three quarters. So after that first quarter, the school did away with that requirement. And so there was about 80% of the guys going, yes. And um, I happened to be one of those. Uh, but I have to share with you that one quarter that I took in ROTC was really important. Because in that time, they had every student write, because if you're going to um, understand military and war and the mechanics of all that and the philosophy and understanding of all that, you needed to take, they wanted you to take the Bible and come up with a position paper and say, where do you stand on this whole thing? They wanted you to say, what do we believe that God's word has to say if you are a believer about being a soldier? What did Jesus think? Are you a pacifist? Do you hold to a just war theory? Are you a Christian militarist? You know, what is it? Where do you fall? So what I'm going to do today, here's the message. Um, the ushers are going to come down. They have a, a piece of paper with um, scriptures on it. And we're just going to ask you to write in groups of five to six your own position paper. You're laughing like I'm kidding. And the ushers are going, you didn't tell us this. Um, you know, I'd really love to do that. Because I think it's really good for us to struggle through personally, individually, what God's Word has to say about God, politics, and, and government, this series that we're about. Not so much about war. I'd really love for us to think about what does, what does Jesus say and how does He approach this? And you might find, if you were in groups of five or six or seven or eight, that there are people around you who might have a different opinion than you do, and they're followers of Jesus, and they're very passionate about how they follow Jesus. And you'd be interested to know that probably in this church there's a number of different views. And it would be wonderful for me because I wouldn't have to preach here. So, But we're not doing that. But my desire is that this church, that we as people of God, community of believers, not just today, but throughout our growth as a community, do what Wheaton College did for me and also what Trinity Evangelical Divinity School did for me in my training, which was they challenged us to think Christianly. They challenged us to understand the Word of God and to apply it in our lives in relevant ways within our culture. There was no spoon-feeding of answers. They didn't stand up and say, here's what you're to believe. They basically said, this is what God's Word has to say. Here are a number of different views on this, and I want you to take this and to pray and to study and to think deeply on these timeless truths that do not change how they apply to our current situation and whatever the issue might be, whether it's economics or history or whether it is something to do, even with things like um, geology 
or psychology or any of those subjects. This morning, what I want us to do is to look at what the Apostle Peter has to say about how we are approach this topic of God, government, and politics. First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, Peter is writing. He's written this letter to these, these saints who are scattered throughout the Asia Minor area, and they are under deep persecution. They're new believers, many of them. And he says this in verse 13, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What I'd like to do is address three things with regard to how we as followers of Jesus are to live in this highly politicized world, especially now as we move from this point on into the fall and all that's going to be happening. And the reason I wanted to do it now is I wanted to do it before the noise got too loud. And it's hard for us to hear maybe the Spirit of God because we can get caught up in the things that are going on. What I'd like to address is three things, three words. And the first one is the word respect, which just jumps out of this passage and all throughout the Bible. Respect, which has to do with our attitudes and actions. And then I want to talk briefly, and it's a little bit more teaching here, about responses. How do kingdom of God people interact with the kingdom of this world? How does a good citizen from heaven, which we all are, which is our first priority, Engage as citizens of the U.S. or whatever country you might be a part of. And differing Christian responses have been, uh, are, are among us in this nation and have been historically a part of Christian responses. And we're going to look at just three of those. And then responsibility. So respect, response, responsibility. What are some practical responsibilities, some practical obligations of heavenly citizens who are also earthly citizens? We've got a lot to cover, but I'd like for us to kind of stay with it and really apply your heart and mind to this. Someone had mentioned to me, I've heard this a couple different times, so you're going to tell us who to vote for. Uh, I'm going to ask you to really look at God's Word, think deeply what it means to be a believer, and take responsibility personally for what God's calling you to do. So the first is respect. No matter what philosophical or theological response you take, one thing is absolutely Undeniably and inexorably true. Every follower of Jesus is called to respect those in authority, whether you agree with them or not. You just cannot get around this truth. And this is what we're going to start with in the bedrock of everything that's happening from here as we move into these months ahead. Respect is the lowest rung on the ladder of love. Think about it. The lowest rung on the ladder of, of, of love. Because what it means is you're not necessarily having to respect even what a person does or even what a person who, who their value, what their values are. Respect is this. You respect someone because they've been made in the image of God. And then in the case of authority, they've been given a position 
and listen to this, by God, sovereignly, they have come to that place. And God has allowed it. And so Peter is, is very clear about this. You have to have an attitude of respect, even if it means respecting a person merely because of their position or office. You're called to honor your parents, even the worst of parents. And I've had to sit in the office with people and share with them what that looks like. Meaning at times you honor your parents and part of honoring might be putting up boundaries that separate because of the abuse or things. But that's still honor. You're called to honor your governor, even though they may have been a part of the World Wrestling Federation at one point. You're called to honor your president. Listen again to these words from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake. Not for this person's sake or your nation's sake. But for the Lord's sake. To every human authority. Whether to the emperor or the supreme authority or to governors. And Governor Pilate was one of them who put to death Christ. Who are sent by him. God. Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Honor the emperor. It goes on in verse 18, it says, to slaves, show all respect to your master. It doesn't say whether good or bad. But he says here, honor the emperor, that lowest rung of respect. This was no small command by Peter himself. This letter was written around 54 to 68 A.D. in a time, they believe, when Nero was the emperor of Rome. And he was a godless, ruthless, vicious, and evil person. He used to persecute believers of Christ mercilessly. He actually had in his courtyard, he would actually, and this is horrible to hear, but torch Christians as lights. He had no trouble slaughtering them. Peter was actually murdered by Nero. He was crucified. And in his crucifixion, tradition tells us that Peter said, I'm not worthy to die like my Lord and Savior Jesus. So he crucified. He wanted to be crucified upside down. And that's how he died. By the hand of Nero. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, said, forgive them. They don't know what they do. As he looked out at the Roman soldiers and those in authority. As he looked out the Jewish high priests and religious authorities of that land as well. Peter says, submit to your authority, honor the emperor, and respect him. And in light of how hard it is for followers of Jesus to give respect sometimes to those in authority, because we may not agree with them, the Word of God does not say this is a suggestion. This is maybe something you should think about doing. It is a command that if you do not do, you are disobedient to God your Father. You may not like them. You may totally disagree with the way they govern. But guess what? You are not the first follower of Jesus who has faced a hard-to-respect leader, whatever you may think this leader is. We must be different than the world around us. And this summer and fall, I want to tell you, we have an opportunity, folks. We have a great window of opportunity to live in a way that's different than the world around us. To live with the Spirit of God in us that's different than the Spirit that we are surrounded by. Respect has to do with your attitude. It has to do with all you do and say. It means your actions will be different. Your conversation with people about people will be different. But you know, as I was thinking about this, 
one of the reasons I think it's been so difficult for us to live respectful in our age is we've all been infected with a bug. And I think some of it started back in the 60s. A blatant disrespect for authority. And there's all kinds of reasons for all that had happened. But I have to tell you, it has not just pervaded politics, but it pervades almost every area of life. Teachers feel disrespected. Business leaders feel disrespected. Coaches feel it. Bus monitors feel it. Pastors feel it. Church leaders feel it. Sunday school teachers feel it. We live in an ugly, crude, permissive culture riddled with disrespect and anger. And the Word of God says, this is hard teaching, the Word of God says our lives are to be different. I read a recent Time Magazine article. It was titled, Gentlemen, MIA. Gentlemen, in the sense of gentlemen, are missing in action. What the loss of campaign decorum means for America. It goes on to say the Obama and Romney campaigns no longer pretend that 2012 election will be a respectful, dignified ordeal. There will be little dialogue. It won't be fair or reasoned. It will be ugly. How many are sick of it? We have, a, we have the opportunity to be different. We can state our views without being belligerent and ugly. We can state what we believe in a loving way. We can sometimes not state what we need to say in a loving way. There are, it's a matter of learning what it means to be the right thing and the right person respectfully towards others. And how we live in this highly politicized world as followers of Jesus and heavenly citizens is incredibly important. Every day you have a choice. And I just have to share with you, if there are certain news programs that rile you up, don't listen to them. Know your views, stand for your views. But if you get certain and, and it gets you, if you read some certain editorialists who heighten your disrespect, don't read them. If you are with certain people who call themselves Christian and you hear them speaking disrespectfully, challenge them. We need to be people that reflect what it means when we sing, we win the world with love. And God calls us to that. Let's look at our responses. Secondly, what are three basic responses? Another class that I had in my freshman year, I didn't realize this till later in my life. You know how you take classes and all of a sudden later you go, well, that was really a good class. You know, some of you guys who are in finances go, that's accounting class. I'm glad, you know. This is a class that I took with a, a, a Dr. Robert Weber, who is a, just a funny guy, curly hair. He's just, he was great, a great teacher. And he taught a class on Christ and culture, basically off of a book by Niebuhr called Christ and Culture. And he was giving us the views of how, basically how Christians followed Jesus, how Jesus, in a sense, interacted with culture. Was he against culture? Was he in the culture? Was he of the culture, almost for the culture in a way that he melded in? They, they talked about these different ways that all throughout history, Christians have approached culture. And it's, it's, it's really impacted everything that I have done in the sense of it, it forced me to have to thoughtfully put together in my own mind what does it mean to be a believer and how do I interact with the culture around me. And uh, I want to share with you when it comes to God, government, and politics, there really are three basic responses. 
Um, Wayne Grudem, in a book called God and Government, gives about five or six, and so you can break these things down and parse it as many ways as you want. But there's basically three responses, and I'm going to share with you, they're kind of on a continuum. One of retreat to what I call to the other side attack, and then in the middle there's a sense of engaging or, or influencing. In the whole idea of retreating, in this response that believers throughout the ages have some expressed, they see little connection with earthly government and God's government. In fact, there's a separation, so much so that they withdraw. And the view holds strongly that we're aliens and we're just citizens who are strangers of this world and we're just passing through. And so there's a real sense that we don't have much impact, it really doesn't matter. And in some cases, they just it, they say the law of God, the sense of love that changes hearts, is never going to happen through government. So in some cases, they actually physically retreat from the world. They actually build their own fortress. And in, in times past, there's a group called Anabaptists who did that and created their own little societies. Or Amish, or you can think of others. But you can live within the world without even retreating physically from it. But you can retreat from the world in the sense that we're just passing through. And they'll point to the way Jesus lived. He really had nothing to do with government. And they'll have their own arguments. And then on the other side, there's what I call more the attack. It's the idea that the earthly government should become God's government in this life. And they're very militant about it. They believe in their hearts that the world's under attack. They're much more like some of those zealots in Jesus' day. And Jesus even had a few um, among his apostles who believe that what we need to do is Jerusalem and, and Israel needs to take over the government and the whole government of the world and establish God's government in this earthly government. And often what you find in people who are, are more on that zealous attack side is because this government is so important to them, it's, it's such a war that they become angry and they become almost kind of violent. They have almost this kind of um, militant approach to political issues. And this ranges from people wanting to restore this nation to being a Christian nation to some who are what I call militant theonomists, which really believe that every law should be the law of God. Chuck Colson writes, The Christian political right... You have to understand this. He was writing this back in the 70s, 80s. The Christian political right run the risk where many want to impose Christian values on society by the force of law. And he quotes at, some, at one point a Christian leader who had confided to Richard Neuhaus, who has written a number of books. And this, this Christian leader, prominent Christian leader, said the mission of the church is to build the kingdom of God on earth and the means of the mission is politics. That's that position. Chuck Colson says we need to be really careful about going to that kind of extreme. So you have these extremes. Now let me share with you a third response. Believers are to engage, to influence the government of the world. This is not that the government of God and government of the world are the same, nor is this that the government of God and the government of the world have nothing in common. The idea is that they intersect and believers are called to live their lives in such a way that their love penetrates this world. And yet they also, through their actions, through their responsible uh, um, ways of entering into the world, can make a difference in the world. And they should influence the world. 
And like salt, we season the world. And like light, we bring God's presence where there is darkness. But recognizing all the time when we do so, this part of the separation, that governmental laws are not the answer to the world's predicament. Governmental laws can change behavior. They can keep and protect innocent people. And they should do that. But governmental laws will never change the heart. Chuck Colson again makes this point. He says, Christians, at least in the United States, have all too often been confused about their biblical mandates and have therefore had trouble with the concept of patriotism, taking it sometimes way too far to this extreme of attack. They have vacillated between two extremes. The God and country wrap the flag around the cross mentality or the other one of simply passing through mindset. Christian patriots, he said, who understand their heavenly citizenship spend more time washing feet than waving flags. In this mindset of influence and engagement, the follower of Christ is fully rooted in the truth that we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. And with Jesus, we can say, my kingdom is not of this world. But at the same time, we can pray like Jesus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is a very interesting tension to live with, isn't it? And you're called to live in that. So where do you stand? There's these three responses. What's your response? And and as I give this, my guess is everyone's going, you know, I'm engagement influence. That's where I want to be. But you know, it's not that easy. Do you know what in the church, in this church, if you were to say this middle ground was be engaged in influence, we would have people who would tend towards a passing through mindset and we will have people that are tending towards the attack and, and let's get militant about things. Everybody here, if I ask you, would be somewhere on this continuum. And here's the thing that we as a church need to learn how to do. How do we live with that tension and love one another as we live out what we believe God has called us to do? Right? Can we do that? How do we respond to live together in our church, this community, in this highly politicized world? Then how do we as a church of people, community of believers, individually, understanding um, respect is the bedrock of what we enter into. We are going to be respectful. We are going to be loving in the way we converse with people when we go through this. And yet, as a church, we're going to understand there's these different responses. And you're going to understand, hopefully, do your own position papers. This God seems to be where I am. But I am going to have grace understanding that throughout history and throughout God's Word, there are people who have gone from each end of the spectrum who are my christian brothers and sisters who i better choose to understand if we can't do it with the people sitting around us how can we do it with the rest of the world so thirdly responsibility let me tell you who to vote for no i'm just kidding (laughs) what are your biblical obligations according to god's word how do we live as kingdoms of, God, of, of the citizens of, of God and his, his kingdom in this world? Before we even do this, I just want you to note this, because I think for those who might you know, tend towards a more passing through idea and, 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 and end of the spectrum, you need, to, you need to realize that I think this is really important in understanding there is a difference between good and bad government, and we do have the ability to influence good government. The Lord has allowed, I believe, this nation 
to have a good government. In reading through a number of different books and, and studying this over the years, um, you know what really is interesting? God in His grace and His goodness took together a bunch of deists who were really humanists when the founding of this nation with some very deeply committed followers of Christ. He married the best of this humanism together with the best of, of, of what God brought together and created this nation with this constitution that said we need to be a land. We recognize there's different views. They actually kept Maryland from becoming a Catholic state and wanting all of the colonies to be a certain specific persuasion of Christianity. They realized that people needed through their own conscience to have the freedom to be able to vote and to be able to understand what it meant when they voted for what they were voting for and that they could live out their life and their expression of their faith in a way that the government wouldn't interfere. That was what separation of church and state really meant it was that the government would interfere with those and the beliefs of those who had come here with regard to their expression of their faith. There will always be the faith community's need to in some way influence, as they understand it, the laws of our land. So Paul says this is incredibly important that we take our civic responsibility seriously. And what he talks about here doesn't because they didn't have voting in his day when Peter when when Paul was writing this, there was an emperor who had governors around the different parts where Rome had conquered. And he says in verse verses one through four of First Timothy two. Paul says, I urge you, first of all, before you do anything, that you petition and pray and intercede and give thanks for all people, but especially for kings and all those in authority, because those people are the ones that allow for us to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Some governments do not allow for this kind of life and the kind of freedoms we enjoy. There's a uh, global security satellite pictures that um, I had opportunity of seeing, and you can find it on the website, but of North and South Korea, and it's what you see up here. And this is my TED professor, Wayne Grudem, said, when people say the kind of government we have doesn't make any difference to the church or to the spiritual lives of Christians, I think the difference between North Korea and South Korea. These countries have the same language, the same ethnic background, the same cultural history, live in the same location in the world. The only difference between them is that South Korea is a robust, thriving democracy with free people, and North Korea is a communist country with the most repressive, totalitarian government in the world. And what difference that makes in people's lives? There is just a handful of Christians in North Korea, and they must exercise their faith in secret. Severe, persistent persecution has hindered the church so greatly that there's little freedom. The only difference between the two, he says, is the kind of government they have. One country is free and one is totalitarian. And they just show a night satellite, and if you saw the other countries around it, they all have lights, and that country has none. There is such a darkness. Carl F. Henry, thanks for that. Ted's professor also challenged Christ's followers. He said, while the church must avoid extremes, it is not to ignore the political scene. Members of the kingdom of God are also citizens of the world, and they have a duty to work through civil authority for the advancement of justice and human good. Do you know what our first and primary call is? It's to justice. Our primary call isn't about what we necessarily want. It's to what is justice and good. So here are some biblical obligations. Sacrificially love. The very 
First thing, when we talk about respect along with that is sacrificial love, our first priority, our greatest commandment, according to the word of God, is to love God and to love others. More important than any policy or law is our responsibility to love. C.S. Lewis likened love of our country to our love for home and community in which we are raised. He says it's a natural love of the place where we grew up, a love of old acquaintances, of familiar sights, sounds and smells. In the same way we love our family, we love our country. We see the flaws of our country, acknowledge them, weep for them, but we remain faithful in love. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of his love for country even as he was attempting to change its laws. Listen to what he said. Whom you would change, you must first love. Before you go around changing, you better ask that question, where's love in my heart in this whole thing? So in the issue of marriage amendment, as we acknowledge what the Bible teaches, that marriage is between a man and a woman, and yet we also acknowledge we live in a pluralistic society, we're called as kingdom of God citizens to justice, which means even though we may not agree with certain peoples on definitions of marriage, we have a deep responsibility to compassion around these issues of justice and fairness within the laws of our land. And the kind of love that we talk about here is not mere talk, but must be felt and experienced. When Chuck Colson was serving time for his part in the Watergate conspiracy, Al Kui, at the time a senior congressman from Minnesota, offered to serve the remainder of Colson's prison sentence if authorities would release Chuck so that he could be with his troubled family. At that point, his family is going through trouble. Colson recalls at one moment, he says, Al Kui was a respected political leader, and I was this disgraced member of the Nixon staff and a convicted felon. Al and I had not even been friends until we met a few months earlier in a prayer group. Why would a man like Al make such an offer? The answer, Al took Jesus' words seriously. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. This commandment was the central law of the kingdom, and Al was the first encounter I had with that kind of love. So we need to be people who sacrificially love and say, what is justice? When we look at what's going on, what is right and fair? Whenever we vote. And then the other thing I, 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 is, it, is an obligation of those who are, are followers of Jesus Christ when it comes to God, government, and politics is you need to understand God's word. And I didn't say here purposely know God's word. I meant what I said. You need to understand God's word because there really is a difference. As I said, we are to think Christianly in a pluralistic, democratic society. Chuck Colson again says, We have a duty for the good of society as a whole to bring the values of the kingdom of God to bear within the kingdom of man. That is our duty. But then he goes on to say, It is fair to say, however, that Christians have not done a particularly good job at this task. And listen to what he says here. Often they have terrified their secular neighbors who sees Christian political activists as either backwoods bigots or religious ayatollahs attempting to assault them with Bible verses or religious magisteriums. Now listen up. In a pluralistic society, it is not only wrong, but unwise for Christians to shake their Bibles and arrogantly say, God says. That is the quickest way, says Colson, for Christians to lose their case altogether. 
Instead, positions should be argued on their merits. They need to know God's word, but understand God's word so deeply that if the case is sound, he says, a majority can be persuaded, and that's the way democracies and free nations are supposed to work. We are to, like my college experience and my seminary experience, we are to know God's word, but we're supposed to understand it so deeply and so adequately that we can actually say, in a sense, it's not God's word. It's just on its logical basis of understanding and marriage, you can build an argument for it, no matter whether you're a Christian or not. Chesterton would say to the believers in England, he says, Christian doctrines does not mean the absence of thought. It means you don't just say, well, here's a doctrine. It means the end or result of really good thinking. It moves beyond the little Christian tune that I learned when I was in high school. God said it and I believe it and that settles it for me. Understanding God's Word moves to God said it, I believe it because it makes sense and has merit for all people. There's good, solid, logical understanding behind what I believe. Right? And then, the third thing, sacrificially love. We actually need to understand God's Word and then we need to actively vote. We need to take responsibility. It's a privilege that we've been given in this nation. God has given you and me the opportunity to influence this world. And we're to do our duty the best we can. Even when you feel like it makes no difference and you believe your vote may not bring Christian values to the public arena, remember, success is not the criteria always in God's Word. What is it? faithfulness. And in the end, no matter what vote, no matter what the outcome of any election, we of all people don't despair. We don't, you know, so you don't mope around, oh, poor us, we lost another one. We don't walk around like that because we have a hope that we know that when the final vote is tallied, the win is going to be in God's column because we know who ultimately wins. And we live under that. And so we don't have to get all mopey and despairing and, and angry and, and, and on edge and belligerent in the way that we and dis, disrespectfully talk about people because we're afraid we're losing control of something. We don't have control of it to begin with. God does. And so when we come to the end of all this and we, we respectfully enter into this in this next point and we understand God's Word and we sacrificially get to the point where we really love those that we're hoping to bring about changes and we truly mean it, and, and then you actively vote, there is this deep sense in your heart that says, you know what, no matter what happens, God's in control of all this. And you may need to memorize Bible verses. You, you may need to allow your mind to be guiding your whole heart at times. You may need to take Proverbs 21.1 and just memorize it. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Or you might want to memorize Daniel 2.20 in verse 21. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Here's Daniel in a, in a very corrupt nation. Praise be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power is His. He changes times and season. He deposes kings and raises up others. That's my God. No matter what happens, I'll be faithful. He's in control. And then above all, your final responsibility, the one I think that shows most fully whether you really have your hope in God, is the one that Timothy says, pray. Pray. 
Petition, intercede, pray for those in authority. I urge you, first of all, make this a priority, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all. Thanksgiving, isn't that a wonderful... You know what Thanksgiving does? Thanksgiving moves you to a place where you go, guess what, God, no matter what the result is, I give thanks because I know you're in control. There is something so powerful about gratitude to the human spirit. And so he says, even include this thanksgiving that we may live peaceful and pray for the kings and those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness so that all people can know the freedom that comes from Jesus. Everywhere in Scripture, those who have influenced history have prayed. Enslaved by Egypt, Moses prayed. In a time of anarchy, Samuel prayed. Under the leadership of a fleshly Saul, David prayed. A leader in a foreign and godless government, Daniel prayed. Nehemiah, concerned for his homeland, his capital city, Jerusalem, he prayed. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel prayed. Jesus prayed. The early church prayed, and the whole place was shaken. Because they prayed. So where is our hope? Our hope is not in this world or in some laws or in some political situation. Our hope is in God. We each have to consider what's our response. How, how has God knit me together? What has God led me to? What do I understand His Word to say when it comes to this response? And then when I do so, I'm going to take responsibility for this and faithfully, sacrificially love, understanding God's Word, going to actively take part in voting, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to do all this with a respectful attitude through this whole fall. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful that the people where you work, the people where you may go to school, begin to look at your life and they see you as different? Even though you believe what you believe, they see you as loving. They see you as deeply thoughtful about all these things. And actually concerned to understand why they think the way they think. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and have an opportunity to observe this meal, which is the greatest kingdom work that we've ever experienced intersecting in history, which is Jesus, you coming and giving your life sacrificially for us, knowing that it wasn't the system of politics of that day that would change things, but it was you and your love changing our heart and our hearts coming to acknowledgement of our need of you. God, thank you for the way you've provided this meal. May we be nourished once again with grace, and may we give that grace generously to others. In Jesus' name, amen.